Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we need. We ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In May 1911, the largest anchor in the world was sent from the English Midlands on a journey to Belfast. This anchor, which hopefully is going to come up on the screen shortly, weighed 16 tons of solid metal. And it, it was 18 feet 6 long, at, so 18 and a half feet high and 10 foot wide. It was so heavy that at points on the journey, this is in 1911, it had to be pulled by 20 horses to get it uphill. And it was also accompanied by a thousand feet of heavy chain that uh, gangs of men had been working on for weeks and weeks. And this largest anchor in the world was secured to the largest ship in the world, which was called the Titanic. And you all know what happened to that. Sadly, the news just this week reminds us of the dangers of the deep. The wreckage of the Titanic wasn't discovered apparently until 1985, over 70 years after she had sunk, and underwater footage revealed the main anchor was still attached to the bow. They never got chance to use it. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19, the writer says this, "We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We have an anchor. Now in the Christian life, we know, I hope you know by now, that we will be battered by storms at times and we will be thrown around by the waves. And I guess you, you may know that it is so wearying. It can feel that you might be dragged under by the currents that are there under the surface. Things like pain and disappointment in our lives and the lives of people we love. Hostility to faith. There's an undercurrent uh, that is in our culture and maybe even in close relationships that you have. It's, it's battering you. Nagging doubts that come in your mind. Is it really true? Does God really love me? Is he there? How can I be sure of all this? A draining sense of failure of your own weakness and you get so weary and you feel like giving up and that was the situation of the first readers of this letter the first people who heard it they were a group of ordinary Christians who were so getting so battered and, and, and worn down and exhausted that they felt they were getting close to giving up and what we need and what they needed more than anything if we're going to hold on to our faith is an anchor that will secure the boat in the storms of life and what this passage is telling us is that we have the ultimate anchor, the ultimate strong, firm, secure foundation. And that is what the writer wants to teach us here, is that we have an anchor for our lives that is rock steady. A fixed, reliable, trustworthy source of strength and confidence. And we, we need this in our lives, don't we? The writer gives three powerful reasons why we can have every confidence, no matter what, three strands in the rope that hold the anchor and secure it for us. 
These three strands are God's oath, God's character, and God's advocate. God's oath, God's character, God's advocate. The first two points are quite quick, but the third one is a bit fuller. So fasten your seatbelts. Firstly, God's oath. Look there, please, at uh, chapter 6. Again, if you've closed your Bible, we're on page 1205. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Now, why does he suddenly say this? Just before this, in the passage that we looked at last week, the writer has been encouraging his readers not to become lazy in the faith, not to become dull and sluggish or hard of hearing, but to imitate the kind of people who will inherit what has been promised by God. And the way you inherit it is by faith and patience. The Christian life isn't a quick fix. You need faith, which is an active, relying trust, depending on Jesus, the Word of God, and patience to wait through the storms of life. And so his point was, imitate those who through faith and patience receive what has been promised, straight away, verse 13. And this is the example, the great biblical example of someone who has inherited what was promised through faith and patience. And he is Abraham, Father Abraham. Actually, three of the major world religions recognize Abraham as a father of faith, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. He's a major figure in, in the world. So even if you're here as a secular person or an inquirer, it's worth knowing about Abraham to understand the world we live in. Father Abraham, if you were at King's Church last autumn, we did a whole series on the gospel to Abraham. What the life of faith looks like with its ups and downs and how patience is an integral part of that. God had made great promises to Abraham. The greatest promises he's made to anyone. I will make you into a great nation and give you a great name and give you a great land to live in. I will be on your side. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. And if anyone curses you, I will curse them. That's protection. And through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. Which means renewed, encouraged, helped. The whole world, every nation, every family on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And God had reiterated these promises more than once. And you know, God's word on its own is enough. But he reinforces it by swearing an oath. Verse 13 says, he swore by himself. And verse 16 continues, for people swear by someone or something greater than themselves. I don't know if you've ever read the, the, the uh, fantasy epic Lord of the Rings or saw some of the marvelous films that were made a number of years ago, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which introduces the ring of power. It looks just like my wedding ring. Although, if I threw this in a fire, it wouldn't start speaking funny languages. And um, a character, who, a creature character who's been completely consumed by this ring, so it's become the center of his existence. And he's even ended up with a new identity. He's called Gollum. And at one point in the film, Gollum wants to make a solemn oath to swear by something that he's going to be truthful. And he searches his mind for the most important thing to him. And of course, it's the ring of power. And he loves that ring so much that he actually calls it my precious. So he swears, I swear 
by the precious. He swears by the greatest thing known to him. Now, although we live in an increasingly secular society in this country, we have a centuries-old tradition that in a court of law, you place your hand on a holy book and swear by it. And magistrates dispense justice in England and rely on the Bible to force people to tell them the truth. This oath, still sworn by witnesses and defendants as they hold a holy book, has given the English language one of its most familiar sentences. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the... Still awake. Other faiths can take the oath on other books, Muslims on the Quran, Jews on the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. You are promising that what you are about to say is trustworthy because you are swearing by a higher power. But if we swear by God, when we make an oath, who's God going to swear by? There's no one higher. That's why he swears by himself. God is the guarantor of his own promises because he is the very highest authority. Now, God didn't need to swear an oath. His promises are enough. His promises are always true. But he swore an oath to Abraham to help Abraham. See, God knows how weak we are, how many doubts we have. So he gives us this extra layer of reassurance. And verse 17 says here, he swore this oath because he wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the one receiving the the oath. God's oath is an act of grace to us, not because his word is in doubt, but because we are in doubt. I promise you this, he says, and I swear by it. I swear by myself. And this oath, by the way, was not just to reassure Abraham. Verse 17 continues. Have a look at this. This is great. God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. See, we might think, yeah, it's great that God swore an oath to Abraham sometime in you know, the second millennium BC. That's a very long time ago. What does it mean for me? And what this verse says is that it was for you too. It was for the heirs. So God's promise to Abraham, God's swearing to Abraham involves you, Christian friend. God is thinking about you when he makes this oath. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are Abraham's children, heirs according to the promise. You will inherit what was promised to Abraham. In Jesus, you too, Christian friend, are part of God's promise to bless the world through Abraham's family. He is doing it through you. All the promises are for you too. And if Abraham obtained the promise... You will too. Now just think about this for a moment, Christian friends. God swears that he will keep his promise to you. And what has he promised? He's promised to meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. He's promised to hear your prayers. Whatever you pray, he's listening. He's promised never to leave you or forsake you. You'll never be abandoned by this father. He's promised to forgive all of your sins if you trust in Christ. He's promised to strengthen you and hold you and 
live within you by his Holy Spirit. He's promised that one day he's going to come back for you and bring you to his home in glory. And he always keeps his promises. They're rock solid. Why is God's oath so solid? Because of his character. Second point, God's character. This is the second strand of the rope that holds the anchor. It's closely related to the first one. God has sworn an oath by himself. We can trust that oath because of who he is. Now yesterday in this room, and we still have these beautiful flowers here and the candles. A young couple who had got married in COVID and they only had about 13 guests uh, decided that they wanted to have their kind of big celebration. And so they renewed their vows here with about 300 guests in this room. And I was uh, thinking as, as we went through those vows, you know, in, in marriage, mere mortals make some pretty big promises, don't they? Every time I hear those vows, it, it gives me pause. And I think about what I've promised. For better and for worse, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, I will marry everything I have to you. Now, why would you believe a promise that someone makes you? Only because you know that person. You've spent enough time with them to know that you can trust them. You've become to realize that they're honest and reliable. They may not be perfect, but they're trustworthy. And the same goes for trust in God. Verses 17 to 18, the author points out that you can be sure of God's promises not only because he's sworn by them, but because of the nature of God himself. Verse 17, he says that his purposes are unchanging. God, God doesn't say one thing and then change his mind. He doesn't flip-flop. He doesn't get cold feet. He doesn't back out of things. He doesn't say, you know what, this whole business about the cross and forgiveness, I've just had second thoughts about it. <laughs> his purposes are unchanging. Verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. He doesn't say one thing and kind of fudge it and mean another. He doesn't deceive people and trick them. He never lies. Abraham was, became so sure that God would keep his promise that when God told him a, 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 a shocking command that he was to take his, the promised miracle baby Isaac, who was by this stage a young man, and take him up a mountain and sacrifice him on an altar, it's just a shocking and unthinkable thing. Abraham said, I will obey. He got up and obeyed because he reasoned, God's still going to keep his word even though I don't know how. Because the whole promise looked like it was totally in jeopardy if Isaac died. Why would God take that away? So he reasoned to himself, Hebrews tells us later, well, God must be able to bring him back from the dead. It's the only possible outcome he could figure out, was that God must keep his promises. Therefore, somehow he's going he's to raise Isaac from the dead. And of course, God, we know, provided for that. He didn't have to kill Isaac. He provided a substitute. But Abraham reasoned beyond his own circumstances of the moment based on the character of God. Somehow God will keep his promise. And this is what you and I need to do, don't we? Because we're such captives to the moment. We're so easily taken in by what's happened this last week or even this morning. We're, so, we're creatures of the moment. We forget so quickly. God may have come through for you and provided for you in such a dramatic way 
in the past. But when that same issue comes up again, aren't you tempted to just doubt again and get all scared? I am. One point in our lives, we had a year where we had very, very little money <clears throat> through a combination of circumstances I won't repeat here. We were, were so broke, actually, that um, I took on two part-time jobs as well as studying, and we actually started going to a food pantry, food bank, and um, we were relying on it for food. And during that period of, time of our lives, I have never seen such, such incredible, out-of-the-blue provision. I've never seen it before or since. You know, money would just appear. Someone would put some money in our, in our locker. Our church, somehow, we didn't even know the people. The deacons put, gave us a check from the deacons fund. Money would just appear from here, there, and everywhere. There's one point where I actually, every time I looked in my bank account, it had gone up. It's never happened since. <laughs> I went to this food pantry, and, and right before Christmas, they, they said, hey, come here, you, and they pulled out this huge turkey and gave it to me. Amazing provision. Guess what? A few years later, we're in financial difficulty again. We forgot all about that. We started worrying again. Oh, no, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Forget so quickly. So if we lack confidence in God's character, and we do, you can actually build it up, a little bit like training your body in the gym. You can build up confidence in God's character, and you should for your own good. Reflect back on your own life, your own story, God's track record with you. Don't just be captured by the moment and the problems of this week. Think about what he's done for you in the past. Read the Bible. It contains the story of how God has dealt with his people over thousands of years. And many of, many of them have been in the same situations. It will help you to see and understand his character and learn patience. Spend time with him in prayer. Don't feel you have to wipe your face and wash your tears away and, and act all religious before you can pray. God wants the real you. He knows who you are anyway. Take it to him. Sit on his knee. Bring your problems before him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Spend time with older Christians, people who've been in the faith for longer. They've walked this path before you. They have mature, seasoned wisdom. You know, none of our experiences are really new. And then there are some really good resources, quality resources out there of people with great minds who have thought about the doubts and challenges of the faith and have, have written stuff for us or spoken for us. You can read books and articles and watch, watch um, podcasts. C.S. Lewis, Rebecca McLaughlin, Timothy Keller, Oz Guinness, Richard Kyes. There's so many good things out there. God's character can be relied on. So we've thought about God's oath and his character, and those are the first two strands of the rope that holds the anchor. Remember, we need an anchor for the soul. And the third one, and the greatest one of all, the third strand is God's advocate. God's advocate. Verse 19 to 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What's all this about? Now we have to cast our minds back to a world where the Jerusalem temple was one of the greatest structures in the ancient world. It was, 
It was a, a, a marvel to look at architecturally. It glinted in the sun. The front of it was white and it was crowned with gold. And it, it could be seen for miles around. And it was the center of the whole of a people's life, the center of Judaism. Jews who were diaspora Jews, they were scattered abroad in Egypt and Italy and other parts of the world would send their temple gift in every year, a gift towards the temple. And those who could would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple because that's where God lived, especially with his people. You want to draw near to God, you want to draw near to life and joy and, lo- and happiness and blessing, you go to the temple, you get as near as you could, but you couldn't get that near. Because at the point where God was specially said to dwell, there was a thick, huge curtain. I wonder if I can do this without it falling down. Some of you are feeling nervous now. But there's this huge curtain that's blocking the way between you worshippers and what's going on behind here with God. And it was much thicker than this. It was so thick and it was beautiful and embroidered. And it meant that the presence of God was kept away. Why? Because it wasn't safe for simple, sinful people to go near that. And only one person could go into that room once a year. The high priest, dressed with the most incredible, beautiful finery, the, the jewels of a nation. And he would go in with, with offerings for sin because he was a sinner and the people were sinners. And he would go into the presence of God himself and represent the people right there in front of the Almighty One. And they had to attach ropes to the high priest just in case he popped his clogs inside there because no one else is going to go in and get him out. I don't think it ever happened, but it's a safety rope. It's like an insurance policy. So it says here, just, just get this image, the anchor has gone into heaven into the most holy place, the inner place, where only the high priest can go. How come? Because Jesus has gone in there on our behalf. And he's a high priest forever. So that high priest in the old system could go in there one time a year, you know, one day, special day, and then come out. Jesus has gone in there and stayed in there. He's in the most holy place, and he's there talking about you forever. Because he's your advocate. Anchors usually go down, don't they? They let this anchor off the ship. The Titanic had a thousand feet of chain. You know how deep it was when they sank? 12,000 feet. This anchor has gone into heaven. It's gone up. And it's secured in there. And if you're on the end of that chain, he'll never let you go. We've got God's oath. We've got his character. And now we have this advocate. Uh, Now, I know that all this is a concept that's quite a little remote to us, um, especially if you're not from a church background. And modern Western people, I think it, it does take us a while to grasp this. We don't live in a world where temples and priests and sacrifices resonate that much. You know, there was a time when everybody in the world was trying to draw near to a deity through priests and temples and sacrifices. This, there was a time when there was no one without a religion, and that time is no more. So... Is this relevant to us? Yes. Because we still need an advocate. I'm going into chapter 7 now. Verse 25 says this. 
Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, that word intercede means to make an appeal to someone, to approach someone with an earnest appeal on behalf of someone else. And it's a word that's used of the courtroom. What a lawyer does, a barrister does, is makes an appeal. They're an advocate for their client. If you were accused of a crime and you went to court and you placed your hand on the Bible and you swore to tell the whole truth, I would suggest that you would be wise to get the best advocate you could. I know there are some films where people heroically decide to defend themselves in court, and usually in Hollywood it ends up working out great for them. But in the real world, it would be a disaster. Imagine facing an intense trial and arguing on your own behalf. Facing clever barristers who know the system, they know the law, they know the arguments, and they know all your faults. It wouldn't work. You'd end up pleading the horse and cart law of 1735 and being sent down. Hebrews is saying, you don't have to go it alone. Because Jesus Christ is the advocate that you need in the ultimate courtroom, in the center of heaven where the ultimate verdict matters. And this is actually the most practical thing we could think about today because when it comes down to it, you and I are always trying to defend ourselves and justify ourselves, and we're always living for a verdict. We're always arguing for ourselves. We're trying to find approval. We want a good verdict. We all do it no matter who we are. Whether you're a religious person this morning or you're an atheist, we all do this. We're all doing this. I want to think about some diagnostic situations. Social media. Why do you choose the photos that you choose to put out in the world? You don't keep the pictures that you hate, do you? Ever taken a whole bunch of pictures and then deleted all but one? Why did you choose that one? It's because you want people to think you look like that, not like the other photos. You're curating your online presence. You know, we walk around with an image of ourselves that we are projecting, and we even manage to fool ourselves most of the time. We know how to look in a mirror. I know how to look in a mirror and instinctively suck in my belly at the same time. I'm like a ninja when it comes to that. And then you see a photo and you think, goodness me, I don't look like that, do I? It's alarming. You know, you may actually not know what you really look like. A friend of mine saw a photograph that was taken on the beach. A man was walking along the beach with his wife. Fat man. And he said to me, I thought, who's that fat guy with Elizabeth? It was him. <laughs> and it caused him to go on a very intense diet where he halved all of his meals for months and months and got down to a certain size. Hey, why do you spend the pounds, the money that you do on makeup? Bless you. Makeup, my days, it costs a lot of money. I'm glad I don't need it. <laughs> Which jury are you trying to convince? What verdict do you want? What, why do you tell the stories that you do on Be Real 
and Facebook. And be real, you put out one image of yourself and one statement about yourself every day, and all the people who are seeing you are thinking, wow, you're being real. You're not being real at all. <laughs> that is the most perfect moment you could possibly pick with the best picture of yourself to project something so that you get the verdict back. And don't let's get started on fake book. What about those statements that you put out on Twitter? Aren't you basically advocating for yourself? You're saying to the jury, I'm interesting. I'm cool, I'm smart, I'm funny, I'm beautiful. <laughs> what about social interactions? Why do you feel the need to advocate for yourself that you are a, such a hard worker? You know, you, you, you have to put forward the case that you're working really hard and show other people that you're working really hard and mention how exhausted you are because you work so hard. Why does criticism feel so painful? Why do we project as if we are in the know? We quickly assert, oh yeah, I, I, I knew that, yeah. Yeah, I know, yep. Even the phrase is a phrase that can be a way of telling the other person, I already knew this, I got it. And that phrase is, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I was just saying to Steve the other day, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in the know. I'm projecting. I need you to think I'm really knowledgeable. Why do you feel you have to justify your existence? As a mum, as a student, as a carer, as a child, as a church member. What we do with photos and mirrors and social media, we also do with our own character and soul. What happens to you when someone gossips about you and destroys your reputation, and slanders you, why does it hurt so much what those people think of you? If someone says you lack integrity, you are a liar, why, why does it hurt so much? Which jury are we trying to convince? Why do grades and assessments and prizes and awards matter so much? What is it about that verdict that makes so much difference to your heart? I was a student at a theological seminary, Bible college, and I worked very, very hard. And I told myself that it was because it was such a unique opportunity to study and I was being supported to do it, and I needed to train and study really hard to make the most of it. And all of that was true, but it was only partly true. There was another truth underneath that was more important, because there was a brass plaque in the academic center of the institution, and on that plaque was, was carved the name of the top student every year, and it had gone back to the early 1970s. And deep down, I wanted my name on there, Oh, I wanted to be on that plaque. And there's only one every year. And after three years of incredible effort, the name was announced. And it wasn't my name. It was Michelle Sanchez. Something inside me broke and died. And I had sacrificed too much to get close to that prize. And I had loved it too much for the wrong reasons. Because I wanted that verdict from the people I admired. You were the top student. What is it for you, friends? We're looking for a verdict in a courtroom. 
We're just like ancient people with their temples and their priests. We need an advocate to represent us and help us and stand for us. And Hebrews is saying, Jesus Christ is your advocate. That's basically the whole point of chapter 7. Uh, You'll probably be glad to know we can't go through that in as much detail. It's about this mysterious character called Melchizedek. I'm going to talk about him briefly, but don't lose sight of the fact that this is really about Jesus Christ being the greatest advocate you and I need in the ultimate courtroom. Melchizedek only appears in three places in the Bible. The biggest place is in Genesis chapter 14. There's a guy called Lot. He's um, Abraham's nephew. And Lot is living in this place with his family and he gets kidnapped and all his stuff gets robbed and him and his family are taken away by this consortium, this coalition of kings. And Abraham hears about it and he says, okay, we're going to rescue Lot and his family. And Abraham has a private army in his household. He has over 300 trained men. So Abraham isn't just camping, you know, he's, got, he's like a merchant prince. And he goes and he fights these kings in this dramatic battle and he absolutely batters them. Some texts call it the slaughter of the kings. I mean, it, there is, <laughs> Abraham just goes right through them and he rescues Lot and his family and he rescues all the possessions and all the plunder and all the people and he's traveling back. And as he's traveling back, you know, the victorious merchant prince, this guy, mysterious guy comes out to meet him and they have this weird interaction. And the guy's name is Melchizedek. And he comes out and he speaks to Abraham and it just sort of comes out of nowhere. Who is he? We don't know who his parents are. We don't know where he began or ended. We don't know how come he's a priest. It says here, he's the priest of God Most High. And he blesses Abraham and he says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham's the guy that's got all the promises, but Melchizedek is blessing him. And Abraham responds and gives him 10% of all the plunder. A tenth, which you would only give to a great king. And only the greater one blesses the inferior. So this Melchizedek is even greater than Father Abraham himself. And then he disappears. What? What? And then the priesthood gets introduced in the law of Moses and it has to be descendants of Levi. So it's a family uh, qualification. Now, we don't know much more about this character, Melchizedek, but we've got a few hints. His name means king of righteousness. Melech is king. Sadiq is righteousness. So uh, the mayor is Sadiq Khan. Don't know if Ulez is righteous or not. Let's not go there. Melech, Sadiq, Melchizedek, he's the king of righteousness. That's his name for a start. And then his job title is he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace, shalom. So the king of righteousness is the king of peace. And that's actually the city of Jerusalem. So we're getting this picture of him. And and listen, here's the other thing. He's a king and a priest. You might have watched the coronation of King Charles III. And of course he goes in with this amazing finery and the the cathedral and so on and so on. And and, and who's there? The Archbishop of Canterbury, the leading figure in the state religion. And he's like a high priest. 
He installs the king. The only person in the entire Old Testament who ever is both of those roles is Melchizedek. He's both the king and the archbishop. So we have this amazing character who just comes in and then disappears. And what the writer of the Hebrews does is he realizes that Melchizedek is actually a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus from 2,000 years ago, before. Uh, the, the, the technical word is a type. A type is a pattern of what's going to come. It's a shadow, and then there's going to come the substance. It's a, a hope, and then there's going to come the fulfillment. And in every single way that we have just mentioned, Melchizedek is the type of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of righteousness. He's the righteous, fully righteous king, and he makes righteous decisions, and he gives you his righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. We, we talk about it at Christmas. He's the prince of peace. He gives you a peace that passes understanding. And Jesus is the king and the priest. And priests in the Old Testament had to descend from the line of Levi. But Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So he's not qualified, is he? He is, if he's in the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 was the other reference to Melchizedek. A mysterious, beautiful, amazing psalm that mystified people for many years. Here's what it says. I'll read it a few verses for you as we come to the end. Yahweh, God, says to my Lord, sit at my feet until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a psalm written by David a thousand years before Jesus. It depicts David's Lord, who is enthroned by God, who rules victorious and is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who on earth is Psalm 110 talking about? Nobody knew until Jesus came. So now, this Jesus is the one who is your advocate in the ultimate courtroom. You don't have to go it alone. He's there for you. Christian hope has gone into the center of heaven as an anchor and is lodged in there. And Jesus is there advocating on your behalf. And we might tend to think that if Jesus advocating for us is a bit like a trial lawyer pulling out a file and uh, looks at it and he says, uh, well, your, your honor, I want to talk to you about Sims. And uh, Sims is there and he's thinking, oh no, he's got the file got everything about me in there. And we might imagine that Jesus says, well, Lord, well, Father, you know, uh, he's messed up again. Uh, he keeps saying he's going to change, and then he, he, yeah, he's done it again. And he, it's really bad because he also leads the music at the church. I just say to you, Father, have mercy on him. I'm just, he's going to try harder next time. He's pleading. He's ple I'm pleading for you. you know, have, give him a break. And you'd think to yourself, well, that kind of pleading can only go on for so long. <laughs> That's not what this is about. That is no comfort to us. Hebrews 7 verse 27 says this. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
So when God the Father looks at you, friend, and Jesus comes to advocate for you, Jesus says, says, I died for him. I died for her. There's now nothing against them. They are completely acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father. They are loved and adored just as Jesus Christ is. And the high priest, when he went into the the, the most holy place was wearing the most beautiful, valuable clothes that the people could, could, could find, like the crown jewels of the nation. And so when God the Father looks at Jesus Christ in heaven, the high priest, he sees his beauty, his majesty, his magnificence, and that's what he sees when he looks at you. Your hope is secure in the eyes of the most important person in the universe, you are loved and accepted and adored, no matter what you've done. God's sworn it. His character is reliable, and there's an advocate for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, help us to grab hold of that anchor this week. Some of us are weak. Some of us are struggling with, with various things. Some are perhaps in danger of getting slack. We ask that you would wake us up again and and, uh, encourage and strengthen us, our weak hands, our feeble knees, to hold on not to ourselves and our own efforts. That would be futile. But to hold on to the perfect work of this great high priest, the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.